Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Claudine, in this episode, we're marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. It's a long, long time ago, but given recent events, it feels very present. Claudine, can you remember where you were 20 years ago on that day? Oh, so clearly, Chuck. I was actually in my first proper job. I was working at BBC Monitoring, and it wasn't in a newsroom. I was in a research team, and we were just all crowded around what was a pretty small television. It would look very old-fashioned now that was attached to the ceiling of the room I was working in. And we were just glued to the screen for the whole day. And I can just remember knowing instantly that the world was never going to be quite the same again. And, and also feeling this really strong need to connect with people who I was close to that evening. It just felt like a very, very unsettling and disturbing moment. I was working in, in open source intelligence and that became a very prominent area of work in the years after 9-11, as there was some examination of the role, of the importance of the role, actually, that it, that it plays in helping governments and, and, and organizations more generally to understand and anticipate what's around the corner. But I know so many peers of mine who were just starting out their careers at that moment and were prompted on that day to completely change what they had planned to spend their adult lives doing. Chuck, I'm intrigued. What were you doing? Well, it's interesting that we can have this conversation because it reminds me of the conversations that some of my elderly relatives would have about the Kennedy assassination. Every American knows exactly where he or she was when President Kennedy was assassinated. And many decades after that, we can have the same kind of conversation about what happened on the day of 9-11. I was working in our Moscow office at the time, and it was in a world that was much less connected than it is now by the internet and by mobile phones and by email. And in the limited manners that we had of contacting each other back then, or perhaps the more traditional methods that we had for getting in touch, the office phone rang off the hook, the email that we had via a dial-up modem started beeping, and people told me to check the news websites. And I did that as quickly as I could before the internet actually crashed. And I just remember that afternoon heading back to the flat in Moscow stuck in one of central Moscow's notorious traffic jams and sort of looking up at the sky and thinking that what happened in New York bore, even at that very moment, all the hallmarks of a terrorist attack rather than some sort of state-backed activity. But I guess what worried me the most on that day was whether what was happening in New York City had the potential to escalate into a broader global conflict that would soon involve the city that I was in, and whether we might not see fighter jets or other military hardware in the skies over Moscow. We didn't, and we have that to be grateful for. And and the rest of that day really was spent in front of the television, watching CNN, and then trying to establish a phone connection with family and friends who were in New York City at the time to make sure that they were all okay. I remember feeling genuinely frightened that day too, Chuck. And memories of that period have come flooding back over the last week as we've watched developments unfold in Afghanistan. 
We're going to be talking about the implications of those developments, both for Afghanistan, but also for the geopolitical environment more generally in this edition of the podcast. That's right, Claudine. This will be a podcast that is part reflection and part contemplation of the legacy of a horrible day. I remember it well. I was head of Middle East Department in the British Foreign Office, and I was briefing Shell Oil Company on stability in the Middle East. And following a very good lunch, I uh, returned to the Foreign Office to find everyone huddled over their TVs when the second of the Twin Towers had just come down. And the briefing I'd just given was irrelevant because the world had changed. That was Sir William Patey, Control Risks International Affairs Advisor and a former British ambassador to Afghanistan. I was actually traveling to Central Asia. I was going to the airport. And at that time, I was at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, heading the Central Asia research program. And Central Asia was at that time very much a backwater. So very few people were paying attention to it. And of course, after 9-11 has changed. It moved all of a sudden to the center of a global international security agenda, geopolitical agenda. That was Oksana Antoninka, a director in our political risk practice. I was just returning to campus for my junior year of university. It was one or two days before classes started, and we watched these scenes in just sheer disbelief. And of course, it completely changed the tone of that academic year, as I think students uh, at my university and around the world were reckoning with what this meant for their futures and their careers and the world going forward. And that's Jonathan Wood, principal based in our Washington, D.C. office. Jonathan, you've just written a piece on the nature of the global terrorism threat now, 20 years on from 9-11. How would you characterize it? Overall, the global terrorism threat landscape has become much more decentralized diffuse, somewhat less predictable, and more complicated. We are dealing not just with a kind of geographic concentration of terrorist activity, but with terrorist activity motivated, inspired, incited by groups all around the world, and indeed to many individuals and individually inspired homegrown extremists, especially in Western countries. The terrorism threat has also, of course, greatly expanded across the full spectrum of sort of ideological extremism. In recent years, we've had the emergence of new and significant terrorism threats, particularly from far-right extremists and increasingly from online ideologies that would not have been possible 20 years ago. So businesses, law enforcement, security services, the intelligence community are dealing with a much broader and more complicated threat in some ways than we were at the time of the 9-11 attacks. And I wonder what you all think the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, what the impact of that is actually on the terrorism threat globally? Well, I think it will give some sort of sucker to extremist organisations who will take some comfort from the Taliban's claim to have won. And if you look at the formation of the new government in Afghanistan, you've got some UN-listed terrorists. The most striking one is Sarajin Haqqani as the Minister of Interior. He's, he's on a global terrorist list. He has a long history of terrorism blowing up the Indian embassy in Afghanistan. So 
there you've got some terrorists who are now part of the mainstream in Afghanistan. Now, whether the Taliban provide safe haven or not for international terrorists, I'm pretty clear they're not going to be as uh, as diligent in rooting them out than the regime before with American help. So they'll have been given a confidence uh, and a boost. And some of the people who are in the government now have very strong al-Qaeda links. And many of them served in Guantanamo. So they've now got these international links that they would have developed in their time in detention. So all in all, a bad day for counterterrorism, I think. And yet the past few weeks have, have really confirmed for us all that the war on terror, the 9-11 era is well and truly over. And the focus of the US and other governments that were aligned with the US and involved um, in, in fighting and in supporting the Afghan government over the last 20 years, that the, the focus, particularly of the US, has changed so that fighting terrorism overseas is, 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 is very much deprioritized. So what do you think is the strategic interests now of the US in, in this new era? Claudine, if I could just contextualize that for a minute, it's interesting to go back and recall some of the early um, political rhetoric of the global, what we called at that time, the, the global war on terrorism, where you'll remember then President George Bush said a few things, either you're with us or against us, was sort of the immediate post 9-11 zeitgeist. And, and later that mission evolved into fighting terrorism abroad so that the U.S. wouldn't have to confront it in the U.S. and, and, and its allies as well. And aspects of those missions are still in place. The, the Biden administration has said, for example, that it intends to rely on over-the-horizon capabilities to fight terrorism. But that sense that the U.S. would intervene liberally in another country's politics is, as you say, well and truly over. And I think the motor behind that is a desire to compete more effectively with other emerging powers, especially China. And a sense 20 years after 9-11 that the US has focused too much on counterterrorism and security at the expense of you know, other aspects of the country, its political health, its economic equality and opportunity, social divisions, which have recently emerged very significantly along both racial lines and regional lines here in the US, including as a result of the pandemic. So there is this sense that the US needs to get back to some of those domestic priorities in order to compete effectively. And the hope is that it can contain or, or manage the global terrorism threat you know, from, from a distance. Oksana, is there any indication that if a future America is a more introspective America, that there are other powers ready to assume a more interventionist role around the world. Then President Obama came into office. He had somewhat similar perception that he would shift the emphasis to domestic agenda. And then the events have taken over. So we've seen the Arab Spring. We've seen a lot of changes that have happened all around the world, which actually required the United States to play a role. And I wonder, given that you know we are living in a kind of post-pandemic environment where politics are changing, should those kind of similar trends emerge and demand for political change emerge in other parts of the world, would the United States still be able to keep away from 
playing a more activist role in support of those trends. And indeed, even within Afghanistan itself, if we see a really significant crackdown on freedoms, you know, massive violation of human rights, would the United States really be able to stay away completely? If we talk about the role of other powers, yes, of course, China and Russia, powers that traditionally or recent years played a role in Afghanistan, are trying to take the maximum advantage out of the current situation, portraying United States as a weak power, as a declining power, and of course, pointing to a lot of U.S. allies, the fact that the United States cannot be trusted. But at the same time, neither Russia nor China are prepared to take responsibility for the security within Afghanistan and, and the spillovers of insecurity, which we are likely to see in the whole broader Eurasian region or potentially even globally. I do not see at the moment any other players stepping in. Uh, so are we heading towards what you know, Charles Kapchan once called nobody's world? I mean, I agree with that, Oksana. Nobody is going to step in. Indeed, the whole emphasis is going to move away from massive military intervention to deal with this, this threat. Tony Blair, in a recent speech, asked the question whether radical Islamism was a first-order threat to the Western world and to, to under undermining Western values and, and whether we should treat it as such and whether other countries, European countries, might have an appetite for more limited intervention. And he did speak about cooperation with the French in the Sahel, where there is a distinct threat. But the emphasis is going to be more on the ideological struggle. He likened it to the threat from revolutionary communism. Radical Islamism represents that same ideological threat, and you need to counter it in many ways. So uh, absolutely, no one's interested in taking up the America's military role. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment. But if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week, we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world. Control Risks provides consulting services to help organizations understand political risk, how it's evolving, and how it could impact on their strategic plans. If you'd like to talk to us in more detail about any of the issues that we're discussing in this podcast or other political and security risk concerns, get in touch. Sir William, there may not be a country that's willing to step forward in the magnitude that the United States did in Afghanistan, but clearly all of the countries that we've been talking about have national interests in and around Afghanistan, whether they're security or they're resource-driven or otherwise. How then are those national interests played out in the region? Well, I think we have shared strategic interests, and this is, this is going to be the interesting thing, whether European uh, United States can work with Russia and China. Because if you look at what our shared strategic interests are, it's to prevent a complete collapse into instability in Afghanistan, to prevent a refugee crisis that would lead to state collapse and floods of refugees to Europe. Those are going to require a very different response. And that's why I think you could probably have a contact group of countries which included Gulf countries, included China, included Russia, to think about how we deal with the new Afghanistan. I, I think we're too far apart at the moment, but I suspect in the future there's going to be a lot more talk. I think what we need for that to happen is trust, and that trust is lacking because exactly as Jonathan said, the shift in the US policy and Western policy more broadly is now firmly in containing the rise of Chinese power and containing any power projection from Russia. 
As a result of that, in contrast to 9-11, when I remember landing in Central Asia, Russia actually welcomed the presence of U.S. forces and cooperated, shared intelligence after the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan. Now the attitude is completely different. It is very unlikely that either Russia or China will accept the presence of the American or Western troops in Central Asia, nor will they cooperate on refugee crisis. And it is now more and more seen as a zero-sum game. So without trust, I just fear that such cooperation is unlikely. I'm not suggesting that there would be any U.S. troops in Central Asia. I actually think U.S. is prepared to concede Afghanistan to China. I don't think they're going to do very much to fill that space. I think the the strategic interests have been narrowed down to very limited ones, and it is possible to cooperate with China in Afghanistan, in my view, at a time when you're not cooperating with them on anything else, where the pivot towards U.S.-China rivalry will still be there. But I think the the Americans have just lost any interest in Afghanistan, it seems to me. But what about the the allies of the US who may be feeling a little aggrieved about the extent to which there was coordination with them about the withdrawal? What do you see as the consequences of that on the relationship between Washington and Europe in particular? The task of rebuilding trust and confidence with allies should be as important, if not more important, for the United States now than to more clearly articulating its own posture on the current Afghanistan and, and terrorism. I think this, this trust has been damaged very substantially. And of course, without that trust and without that cooperation, the whole foundation of the European Euro-Atlantic security architecture could be weakened. The Europeans, of course, are now talking even more about the strategic autonomy. And, and if you look at the current German election campaign, almost all major political parties are talking about the need for the European Union Germany and other players to really strengthen their independent military capabilities. Whether they will be able to do so, it remains unclear. For many non-NATO members, like Ukraine, like some of the Eastern European countries that really rely primarily on the United States as their key security guarantor, these are really difficult times. Jonathan, there have been a couple of assertions around the table here in London about what might be happening in Washington and what might not be happening in Washington. Do you think that the United States really will be able to stay out of Afghanistan? And and do you assign high likelihood to the notion that the U.S. could be in or at the center of or part of a contact group looking after common interests in Afghanistan? There was a reference earlier to the Obama administration's policy. And you can think back to the NATO military intervention in Libya, where the Obama administration's policy was sort of unfortunately characterized as leading from behind. And at that time here in the U.S., there was a lot of you know, partisan opposition to the idea that the U.S. would ever play a supporting role and, and not a leadership role, that it should ever not you know, intervene full-throatedly in another country's politics. But what has changed over the last five or six years is actually there's a lot of bipartisan unity here in Washington on stepping back and retrenching a sort of political position, a more isolationist, bipartisan political position periodically resurfaces in U.S. politics throughout history, but is now you know, strongly shared across the political spectrum. There, there are some voices arguing, of course, sometimes disingenuously, that the U.S. should play a more active role in, in Afghanistan or, or in other countries as well. Public opinion is not, is not with that position here. 
if you like, you may characterize the Biden administration's policy as doing what Obama tried to do, but for real this time in terms of pivoting to Asia and disentangling the US from some of its legacy commitments. And so that does create real strategic precarity for some of those countries that are sort of on the the edge of, you know, competing geopolitical interests, whether that's in Eastern Europe or, you know, in parts of uh, East Asia as well. The US will inevitably be drawn back into global security issues because it has unique global presence and in many cases capabilities to address those and of course it remains at the center of the international institutions that are such as they are that are that are going to be called upon to respond but there is i agree completely with, with with sir william that there is an exhaustion with afghanistan in particular and a willingness to you know let some of those equities slide in order to focus on what both parties agree is a, is a bigger strategic issue, and, and that is competition with China and more broadly with other emerging powers. I wonder, Jonathan, if you think this sort of disillusion with the US amongst allies might be short-lived if they become more self-reliant, whether that's in the Middle East, Gulf countries become more self-reliant, and in Europe, they become more self-reliant by investing more in their own defense forces. In the end, the US will see that as a plus and may even then move to reestablish or strengthen these relationships as a result. I've heard some commentators say this could be a very short-lived affair in terms of disillusionment with the U.S. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I, I think Europe augmenting its capabilities and its ability to act independently is within U.S. interest, to, especially when it comes to things like burden sharing within NATO. That's been a policy of successive administrations for many years. It would certainly create the grounds for a more, perhaps a more level and more balanced transatlantic relationship as compared to the kind of condominium of the 1990s where the, the US supplied the military power and the Europeans supplied the money. Now, there, there might be a bit of both of those at play in, in the future relationship. So if the US has indeed made the strategic calculation to withdraw and leave Afghanistan, potentially leave it in the hands of other alternate regional powers to have much greater influence over in time, what is it they've left behind? What do we expect to unfold in Afghanistan now? Well, there's a potential huge humanitarian crisis about to unfold. You've got the Taliban, which has been a a very effective insurgency, but has no real experience in running a national government. We've got some experience of what they did when they ran particular districts. They tended to work through the existing government structures. They tended to keep things in place. Here, they're going to have to run a central bank. They're going to have to run an economy. They're going to have to have a a national fiscal policy. The country's bankrupt. Their dollar reserves are frozen. They are utterly dependent on development assistance. 47% of Afghanistan's needs are from imports, and only 6% of their GDP is in exports. That gap has been met by development assistance. So we could see a very quickly humanitarian crisis. And while the US can take a slightly hands-off approach, I don't think Europe can, and I don't think the neighbours can, because the refugee outflow, the drugs outflow, the instability that comes around will have an impact on all the Central Asian countries, have an impact on Iran and Pakistan, and it will have an impact on the flow of refugees. So our strategic interests there are preventing that happening. So there's going to be a delicate balance to be struck by making demands of the Taliban to get our citizens out, if you're European, and the Taliban wanting development assistance. 
how far are we prepared to go in providing development assistance beyond humanitarian assistance, which I think will be provided. And so the UN is seeking to re-establish its presence in the country. Will the Taliban allow international NGOs to operate? How else are we going to deliver humanitarian assistance? So there is a whole task ahead of the Taliban and all their talk of an inclusive government hasn't come to much at the moment when we look at the appointments. They focused on the Minister of Interior, the Ministry of Defence, Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, Minister for Refugees, but it's basically the hardcore who are in power, four of whom were in Guantanamo, half a dozen of whom are on an international terrorism list. So this is not going to make life very easy. We haven't seen any signs of the technocrats or the, the sort of people the Taliban will need to have in place to have even a fist at running this country. So if the 9-11 era is over, how do you see it playing out and, and what are the implications for, for business? Well, I think you know, we're going to see a difficult time in Pakistan. I think Pakistan has welcomed the Taliban. They may come to regret that because the instability in, in Pakistan will inhibit the Chinese development corridor that they have planned down to the port in Gwadar. So we could see some implications for business in Pakistan. Whether it will bring us closer to the Iranians, it is actually possible. The irony of, uh, of, of Afghanistan is if the Iranians were to re-enter the nuclear deal and get sanctions lifted and were cooperating in Afghanistan, you can see some shifts going on. I think business in Afghanistan, even the Chinese, I don't think, will have an appetite for moving in swiftly. They've got the INAC copper concession and they have their eye on lots of minerals. But I can't see the Chinese rushing in at this stage. And the Russians have been burnt once before and they'll, they'll be reticent. I think people will want to see how things stabilise before anyone's going to be thinking about doing business in Afghanistan. This is going to be a world of NGOs, a world of development assistance, a world of humanitarian. That's where all the activity is going to be. We can also think about broader implications for business beyond just Afghanistan. One important implication is that there is a lot of geopolitical anxiety nowadays all around the world because with the United States losing its battle to Taliban and demonstrating you know, such extraordinary lack of foresight and capacity to manage this crisis effectively has really put a lot of question marks to many other regions beyond, well, beyond Afghanistan, to what extent the geopolitical ripples are going to play out in other parts of the world. And of course, the United States declaring the end of liberal interventionism era has a cost. It is not just an issue of United States domestic politics. It will play out in many other parts of the world where, you know, China, Russia and other supporters of more authoritarian governance and more zero-sum geopolitical reality are going to start asserting more geoeconomic influence as well. But if United States is not going to any longer support governments that have emerged and remain to be rather fragile out of Arab Spring or have emerged out of the wave of democratization in Central and Eastern Europe or are potentially emerging out of similar processes in other parts of the world, that more authoritarian leaders with more appetite for power projection are going to feel in the vacuums, particularly in Africa, in other South Asia, other parts of the world. So I think the ripples for and implications for business are going to be felt way beyond Afghanistan and its immediate region. So at the big picture level, this impression that the US is retreating from global leadership might add a risk premium to companies looking at opportunities, business opportunities or investments in those parts of the world reliant on the US sort of security and geopolitical umbrella. In you know, more practical and immediate terms, 
companies really need to be looking at how the different types of fallout from Afghanistan, from a potential resurgence of transnational terrorism to shifting geopolitics of that region to the prospects for new areas of cooperation or competition between the US, Russia, China, Iran, and other stakeholders. Look at their risk registers, look at their scenarios, and see if this is impacting any scenario that is of significance or, or critical importance to their business. I suspect we're going to see many clients reevaluating their footprints just to double check if there are particular impacts for their interests and operations worldwide. Prior to 9-11, the expression terrorist financing didn't exist. Or if it existed, it was something that was discussed in very narrow and limited circles. There were entire business activities that didn't exist prior to 9-11. The emphasis on terrorist insurance and the kind of threat assessment work that requires the additional requirements of due diligence and of anti-money laundering and of know your customer and the way the financial services system relates to its clients, the way the legal profession relates to its clients. These are all changes that came about as a result of what happened on 9-11 20 years ago. Moreover, I'd say that you know, quite gratifyingly, we have all seen a discussion of geopolitics slowly and then quite quickly climb up the corporate agenda where most of our clients at the very highest levels are talking about geopolitics in a way that they never talked about before. And they understand the impact that international relations can have on their businesses. I guess my concern going forward and what we're hearing already from clients post-Afghanistan is that there was a certain familiarity to that conversation about geopolitics. It took place within certain well-known, defined borders, if you will. And I guess what's happened as the 20th anniversary is upon us and the events in Afghanistan took place is I think companies are concerned that there's going to have to be a new conversation about geopolitics that has to take place. And I think they're uncertain about that. I don't know if they have the vocabulary. I don't know if they have the methodology. And I don't know if they have the certainty that they need to, to carry those conversations through and to understand the implications of business. It, it, it's not quite like we're at one of these end of history sort of moments, but we are at a point where global politics are going to change. And I think we have to redraw the boundaries and, and, and come up with some new vocabulary words. And, and I think we're looking forward to helping companies do that. I think at the same time, Chuck, it's also worth remembering that while it's possibly more timely and urgent to be focusing on geopolitics now than it has been in decades, it's at the same time really important to keep an eye on the constant and long-term threats such as terrorism. You know, much like the US will ultimately have no choice potentially but to engage to a degree with what's going on in Afghanistan because of the nature of some of the groups that may be able to still operate there or have links to the Taliban and must continue to obviously take terrorism extremely seriously. So too do businesses, even when it's not in the news and it's not necessarily at the top of, of, of people's minds. It is a persistent underlying threat that needs to be monitored continually as well. And it's, and it's constantly evolving. And, and if I can add something to that, Claudine, you'll think back to the, the diagnoses 
of the years after 9-11, you know, how was this major attack missed? You know, one of the solutions was that the U.S. counterterrorism agencies, its partners abroad, needed to connect the dots better. And I think what we've seen in the 9-11 era is that concept really taking hold in a wide variety of public sector and business activities. How can we connect the dots, maybe make unintuitive or surprising connections that illuminate something about the risk environment that we, we weren't really paying attention to? And we are, you know, companies now are leveraging big data analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence to try and do this better. So we have tools that didn't exist at the time of 9-11 to, to do this at scale. But it's really taken hold, looking for those unintuitive, those counterintuitive even connections, linkages, trends, and drivers has become a big part of how companies are managing risks in the current landscape. And I think that might be one of the practical legacies of, of the 9-11 era. So William, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to reflect on the last 20 years. It's been a very sobering 20 years. And this is a very sad commemoration when we think about the loss of life that took place. Thank you for the opportunity to, to reflect however sad a day this is. Oksana, thank you for joining us too. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoy listening to what Sir William had to say with his extraordinary experience. And Jonathan, over in Washington, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.